Welcome to the Refine Your Health podcast with Dr. Dion. I'm a primary care physician, and now I can happily add podcaster. Tune in to each episode to hear great information on improving health outcomes, disease prevention, and overall community health advocacy. Thanks for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode to improve your health. Hello, listeners. It is your host, Dr. Dion. Welcome to another episode of Refine Your Health. Today's episode is about impact of COVID-19 on the elderly versus the young. Today's numbers in regards to worldwide cases of COVID-19 is greater than 24 million and greater than 820,000 deaths. Here in the U.S. alone, there are 5.8 million cases and nearly 180,000 deaths. So while we're looking at the elderly population, well, the reason is that they have the most number of deaths within the United States. Apparently, the one of the highest risk factors for them is their age. Other factors that increase their risk for severe illness of COVID-19 is having underlying medical conditions. And based on the Center for Disease Control website, eight out of the 10 COVID-19 deaths are adults greater than age 65 years of age. And so that is an astounding number in that the elderly, elderly population makes up about 16% of the U.S. population and they have over or at least 80% of the deaths. That is just I can't even put any words to it. It's, it's just an enormous number of deaths in this population. So what are the risk factors that increase their risk? And as I mentioned, it's underlying medical conditions in addition to their age. And some of those underlying medical conditions that increase their risk of having severe illness from COVID-19 is heart disease. That includes things like heart failure or coronary artery disease, some cancers, chronic kidney disease, sickle cell disease, type 2 diabetes, COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a weakened immune system, obesity, and some of the other factors that may increase their risk of severe illness is stroke, underlying other lung conditions such as asthma or just secondary scarring to their lungs or damage to their lungs, high blood pressure, smoking, and type 1 diabetes. Now, of course, pregnancy does not play a major role in this age group, but that is a potential risk factor of having complications from COVID-19. So of the COVID-19 deaths in the elderly population, 49,871 deaths are from nursing homes and long-term care facilities. That's about a third of the deaths in the United States. Based on the site from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, this is concerning because this number is an undercount based on what experts warn us about looking at these statistics. An article from the AARP website mentions that each state is required to report COVID-19 cases and deaths in nursing homes to the CDC or Center for Disease Control and individual facilities are required to report that info to residents and their families. However, they are not required to report that to the public. And as a result, some of these states are not choosing to report this information to the public. And I have a personal experience with this in that I recently had a family friend whose daughter, who was in a nursing facility, passed away from COVID-19 and allegedly based on reports from their family that they had 19 other deaths 
of COVID-19 within that same facility. Some of these places are not reporting all of this information unless they have apparently a death of a loved one from that particular facility. And by June of 2020, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services posted data from their nursing home, and they state that 12% of the 15,400 Medicare and Medicaid homes had not submitted figures for their count. So that's roughly 2,000 facilities that have failed to report any positive cases of COVID-19 or deaths to give us better information about who is being impacted in different areas across this country with COVID-19, especially when it comes to the elderly population. And in my opinion, this is just shameful. This could easily be your grandparent, your great uncle, your great aunt, your cousin, your family friend that could be impacted by this and we cannot get the appropriate data from the CDC or these facilities are not being held accountable to report this information so we can get the resources to these appropriate facilities and to decrease the spread of COVID-19 throughout this vulnerable population. Now let's look at the opposite end of the spectrum, the younger population. I wanted to talk about this particular group because as many of you may know that School is restarting on many school and college campuses. Many people are concerned about the spread worsening with the restarts of in-person learning, and rightly so, especially from parents. Many are under the impression that many kids cannot get COVID-19, but that's false. We want to make sure that we're looking at the numbers and how in-person learning can potentially place people increased risk for getting COVID-19. And that's why just looking at many of the states and how it is so disjointed and how many of these states have decided to reopen campuses and that it's not uniform. To be honest, I really think they should have delayed in-person learning and to do it virtually. However, it should have been a plan in place from the state and local levels of how to implement virtual or distant learning. Because as we know that our educational system across this country is not equal and to make sure that the appropriate resources were in place prior to the start of the school year and to prevent what we currently are witnessing across this country is that really no plan has been in place and you allow these students to return to these particular campuses and increase the spread of COVID-19 where they have to revert back to virtual learning compared to in-person learning, having to quarantine many teachers and students because of COVID-19. Let's just look at it. The World Health Organization also expressed concerns about this. The World Health Organization is a directing and coordinating authority on international health within the United Nations system. And they had warned that they were concerned that young people may becoming the primary spreader based on an article from the Washington Post released in early August. Looking at the statistics from the Center for Disease Control website in regards to COVID-19 deaths, 4,895 deaths were noted from February to mid-August. And I looked at the age from zero to mid-40s, not higher than age 44, based on the numbers that I was able to calculate from 
the CDC website and compare it to the elderly population that I mentioned that their deaths were 80% of the deaths in the U.S. And looking at the numbers based on what I just gave you from the age of zero to 44 in the U.S., the young population makes up 3% of the deaths of COVID-19. However, research for this particular show, I looked at an article that was recently published by the Journal of Pediatrics, and it noted that children may play a role in the spread of COVID-19 than previously thought. They looked at the ages from zero to 22 years of age. Even though it was a small sample size of less than 200 children and young adults, they had less than 50 positive cases. And of those cases, some of those children showed symptoms, whereas some of them did not. Despite them either showing symptoms or not showing symptoms of COVID-19, they had higher viral load of COVID-19 based on this study compared to hospitalized adults that were in the ICU with COVID-19. So that is concerning that some of these kids that appear healthy without any particular symptoms of COVID-19 have a higher viral load, which makes them potentially more contagious in in regards to spreading COVID-19. And the word or term used in this study is that they could be potential silent spreaders if they're asymptomatic in regards to symptoms of COVID-19. And so that's concerning when you have reopening of schools and you have increased risk or potential resurgence of cases because of this. If they are doing in person, that's why I say if they don't have virtual learning in place that you have the mass mandate as well as social distancing with different college campuses as well as school campuses. Another concern with children returning to school is that the Center for Disease Control and Prevention recently released a study at the beginning of August noting that Hispanic children are approximately eight times more likely and black children five times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19 than their white peers. It's going to be important to monitor this with the school and campus reopenings to monitor how different ethnic groups are impacted by COVID-19. According to the regional director of the World Health Organization, Takashi Kasai reported that people in their 20s, 30s and 40s are increasingly at risk for potential spreading COVID-19. Based on the World Health Organization um, website, they report that Australia and the Philippines had about half of the cases in the recent weeks that were less than the age of 40. And in Japan, 65 percent of the cases in recent weeks were less than age of 40. And I know many of you have been watching the news with uh, many students returning to college campuses, especially UNC Chapel Hill, where they had video on some of the major news outlets that you could see college kids congregating at residence halls and fraternity houses where they had at least 177 positive cases where they had to retract in-person learning to potentially virtual. In hearing about the outbreak at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill campus, I wanted to look into some of the other campuses across the U.S. and a few that I was able to get from Insider Higher Ed article. They had over the past recent weeks, greater than a thousand students at the University of Alabama Tuscaloosa's campus test positive for COVID-19. University of Iowa had 500 new cases and Illinois State University had greater than 500 cases. However, California 
public colleges and universities basically just said, hey, we're just going to do virtual because of all the numbers. And looking at potential schools K through 12 with the reopening, you had uh, Georgia and Mississippi who either had to close schools or change plans in regards to in-person learning because you had it an increased number of cases. And I know at least in the state of Mississippi that you had at least 2000 positive cases with schools reopening and at least uh, 500 teachers testing positive for COVID-19 were, you know, requiring a large number of people to quarantine because of the resurgence and the spread of COVID-19. Research has shown that younger populations may have milder symptoms or may even be asymptomatic. And if this is the case, you have them potentially increasing the spread of COVID-19 crossing over into the most vulnerable population, which is our elderly. From my standpoint, we should have had a plan in place in regards to restarting schools. That's why we as a people have to hold our local and state officials accountable before we just have this disjointed plan of reopening schools. And not only that, we need to hold our national figures accountable. That's our U.S. president and our representatives, as well as our senators. So what can we do immediately to decrease the impact of deaths in the elderly population, at least. We as the younger population should make sure that we're doing all that we can to protect them. So making sure that we're social distancing, making sure that we're not attending large gatherings where we could potentially become infected and then take it back home to potential elderly relative or a relative with an underlying medical condition. Making sure you wear your mask when you're out in public places, using appropriate hand hygiene, disinfecting surfaces, and our children returning to school and college campuses. If they cannot be safe in regards to social distancing and making sure that there are mandated mask protocols on their campuses, then they should have resources available for virtual learning. There should just not be one option for returning to school so parents can feel safe, their children receiving the education that they need in the appropriate environment. Also making sure that we have the testing available. I know I recently came across an article from the ARP website, which is interesting, is that the National Institute of Health is investing almost $250 million in new technologies to increase the supply and access to labs based on point of care testing, which means basically you can get your testing results immediately so we can decrease the time between getting your results from a couple of days to a week so we can know if there's a potential risk of infection and the risk of spread to potential relatives or the rest of the public. And they are looking at releasing those uh, testing from the based on the National Institute of Health Investment as early as possibly September, October. Hopefully that will get us fast results on some of these college and school campuses because individuals can have their test results within 15 minutes with these particular tests. Of course, further down the road is looking at a potential COVID-19 vaccine that will prove to be safe and effective that will have to go through clinical trials, which I think a lot are going through a clinical trials right now to get us a safe vaccine for COVID-19 because there is no vaccine for COVID-19 at this point. 
Despite what people are hearing out there, there is no treatment for COVID-19. That's why we have to do those recommendations of the mask, social distancing, good hand hygiene, disinfecting surfaces to prevent the spread of COVID-19 because there is no treatment. I know uh, some people may have heard about this convalescent plasma and a lot of people like, what is that? Convalescent plasma is taking plasma from previously infected individuals that have recovered from COVID-19 and using that to treat newly infected patients with COVID-19. Although this has been rushed out as a potential management for COVID-19, many scientists and experts disagree with the rushing out of this treatment that was announced by FDA chief, Mr. Stephen Hahn, because it has not been shown to be efficacious against COVID-19 because appropriate trial studies have not been conducted to confirm this as potential effective treatment of COVID-19. So despite the rumors that are out there, it is not considered a effective treatment at this time for COVID-19. I also want to mention that there have been updated guidelines by the CDC There were concerns that people potentially exposed to a potential contact of COVID-19 or probable COVID-19 should not be tested unless they exhibit symptoms. However, according to the backlash from colleagues, physicians like myself, that that is a ridiculous statement to put out there in regards to public health management of a condition like COVID-19. If I was potentially exposed to someone with tuberculosis, I would need to be tested because it's a public health issue to decrease the spread of that condition. So those statements was walked back by the CDC director, Robert Redfield. However, it still wasn't the best statement in the revision saying that you may consider testing individuals with contacts of confirmed or probable COVID-19. However, primary care physicians like myself and other specialists, majority of us are going to be practicing evidence-based medicine and we follow the science in that if you are potentially exposed I will be testing and I'm sure many of my other colleagues out there will be testing as well if there is any potential risk of exposure of COVID-19 because number one, we need to get this under control and secondly, to make sure that they are managed appropriately. Before we end today's episode, I want to continue to encourage everyone out there to do their part and making sure that they take the proper precautions to decrease the spread of COVID-19. Please pass on some of this uh, information if you feel like it has been helpful to your family and friends. And please check out the AARP.org website, which is an excellent resource regarding the elderly population so you can get up to date information about COVID-19 and its impact on this particular age group. Until next time, it's your host, Dr. Dion, and please subscribe to this podcast. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and feel free to tell your family and friends to check out the podcast. And remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice.